Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. These stories are going to give you chills. This episode, we have a very supernatural lineup. Four ghostly cases. All true stories. First up, it's one of Wisconsin's most infamous and terrifying haunts. The Talman family experienced nine months of paranormal torment when they moved into a new home and purchased a secondhand bunk bed that terrorized the family to no end. It's been referred to as Wisconsin's own Amneville Horror for good reason. Our second story is one of the longest-standing mysteries in Indiana history. A 1940s farmhouse once had 28 fires set in one day by an unseen force, and it was never explained. Many believe it was the work of an angry poltergeist. Next up, a 911 dispatcher in Colorado received a mysterious call from an empty funeral home at 3.30 in the morning. And from there, things get even spookier. Our final story is a touching one. A family in California suffers an unthinkable loss, but in the wake of this tragedy, family members unexpectedly begin experiencing a series of supernatural events that change everything for them. I'm Avery Ross, and this is Avery After Dark. Welcome back to the show. I'm so happy you're here for today's episode and really glad to be a part of your week. Thank you so much for subscribing to this channel. Be sure to leave a like and a comment and turn on those post notifications. I drop new videos every week, everything from the most baffling true crime cases to the most chilling ghost stories you will ever hear. So if that's your thing, welcome. You're in the right place. I want to take a second to give a shout out to you. Yeah, you. Everyone who watches and listens to Avery After Dark, you all are the best. Thank you so much for the support, the sweet comments, the great reviews on Apple Podcasts. I love that you all love the show. I can't wait to continue creating more and more for you all. Just know as we're getting into spooky season, I got a lot coming your way. Now it's time for today's first story. A bizarre haunting that shocked the town and captured the attention of the world. It became known as Wisconsin's own Amneville Horror. It involves the very normal church-going Tallman family in a secondhand bunk bed the family purchased for their children. A bunk bed, you heard me right. Let's start from the beginning. This case took place in Horicon, Wisconsin, which is a small Midwestern farming town, a safe and quiet place to raise a family. It was a life the Tallman family was drawn to when they moved into their house there in 1986. Alan and Debbie Tallman and their kids found a new place to call home. The home was a one-floor, smaller ranch-style house, a place she would never think would be the setting for what came next. And when purchasing the place, the Tallmans figured this was a spot they would be in for years to come. So they decided to start buying pieces of furniture for the family home and fixing up the house as they saw fit. You know, making the place their own. That next year, as the kids were growing, Alan and Debbie decided to head out to a secondhand furniture shop. There, 
they came upon a used bunk bed that they thought would be great for the new house. They were in awe, as it looked almost brand new, and they thought, hey, this would be perfect for their younger kids. They purchased it, brought it home, and assembled it in the basement, where the family stored it for a few months until one day, they moved the bunk beds upstairs. This was a decision that the family would come to regret. Big time. This decision led to nine months of terror for the Tallmans. Almost instantly, strange things began happening in the home. The very first night the bunk beds were moved upstairs, one of the Tallman's children named Danny went to sleep in his room next door to the room the family put the bunk beds in. After falling asleep, an old clock radio in Danny's room came alive. It turned on and started switching stations on its own. Danny jumped up, scared, and ran into his parents' bedroom. He frantically told his parents that the radio had turned on all by itself. And not just that, he said that he saw the dial was moving on its own, as if someone or something invisible was in the room with him, moving it. The parents didn't really believe this and just ended up taking the radio out of the room and chalked this up to Danny having a wild imagination. But then, something else. Within weeks, all the Tallman's children, who rarely fell ill, began getting really sick. Debbie said there were some weeks when all of the kids would all be at the doctor's office at the same time. She had no idea what was going on, but this was unlike anything they had experienced. She said the kids never really got sick before this. A few weeks later, Alan himself had an experience. He was in the basement near where the family had stored the bunk beds prior to moving them upstairs. And down there, he was painting the walls, trying to fix it up a bit. When he decided to take a break, go upstairs and get something to eat. As he left, he placed his paintbrush on the table. When he came back down to the basement about 30 minutes later, he saw the brush had been moved. He found it had been dropped handle first into the bucket of paint. There was no one else in the basement with Alan, so he didn't really know what to think about this. A few nights later, the Tallman's daughter began sleeping in the bunk beds and almost instantly began telling her parents that she was scared to sleep there because she was seeing things in the room. She told her mom, Debbie, that she saw an old witch-looking woman that would stand behind the door and watch her at night. She said the woman had long black hair and glowed like fire. A few weeks later, one of the Tallman's other children, who didn't know anything about what his little sister had seen, told his parents that he woke up in the middle of the night to see an old woman a witch-looking lady standing by his door and said she glowed like fire. All over the house, strange things were happening. Doors banged open and shut on their own, a chair rocked by itself, disembodied voices called out to the family from empty rooms. At this point, the family was starting to believe that their house was haunted. So they decided to bring in their pastor, Reverend Wayne Dobratz. After a walkthrough, he said he felt the presence of evil in the home, the devil. He believed the activity was demonic. The reverend blessed the home and the family hoped that this would help. But the activity continued and it really seemed to center around the children. They were seeing apparitions, hearing voices calling out to them and seeing that old witch. They soon became so scared that they no longer wanted to stay in the house at all. So there was really no peace within the home. Frustrated, one day, Alan began pacing around the house, shouting at the top of his lungs. He had hit his limit. He screamed, 
pick on me, leave my kids alone, show yourself. If you want to fight someone, fight me. Hoo boy. Whatever entity was inhabiting the house and terrorizing the family seemed to accept the challenge. Just a few weeks later, Alan arrived back home around 2 a.m. after working the late shift. As he made his way inside, he heard a strange howling sound coming from the garage. He went to go investigate and said it was then he heard a voice coming from behind the house saying, come here. Alan walked around, couldn't see anything, so as he turned to walk back towards the front of the house, he heard that same voice saying again, come here, come here. He then looked up to see red flames shooting inside the garage. He said the flames had a glow with red eyes. After this, Alan was in distress and began sleeping on the floor of his daughter's room. The kids were terrified at that point and felt better with their dad in the room. One night, as Alan was on the ground about to fall asleep, he said a fog rose up from the floor, formed the shape of flames with green eyes peering at him. A voice then emerged saying, you're dead. And then it was gone. This really shook Alan, and from then on, just like his kids, he was terrified of whatever entity was in the home. A few days later, a relative of the family spent the evening at the house, helping Debbie with the children while Alan worked late. Now, this relative was a skeptic of the paranormal. He really didn't believe in it. So when they said the house was haunted, he didn't care. He thought, eh, I'll be fine. But he wasn't. But on this evening, this relative became a believer when that night, he saw a horrific figure materialize in the bedroom as he was putting the kids to sleep. And that was it. After nine long months of torment, the Tallman family fled their home that night in the dead of a Wisconsin winter. They had finally had enough. Two weeks after the Tallmans left their home, they had the bunk bed destroyed. But news spread all over town, and everyone was talking about the haunting. Media quickly descended on the otherwise sleepy and quiet neighborhood, along with hordes of curious thrill-seekers and paranormal enthusiasts. Rumors of ghosts had swept through the crowd at a Friday night basketball game at the local high school, and hundreds of cars began pouring down Larrabee Street past the Tallman home. People were walking through the yards of all the other homes on the block, climbing over fences, peering into windows of the home, Many saying, well, they're not afraid of ghosts. So they tried to open the doors and windows of the Tallman home and were intent on getting inside to prove how unafraid they really were. When the police got there and ordered the looky-loos to get away from the house, a few wannabe ghostbusters put up a fight and arrests for disorderly conduct were made. And in the end, the street was barricaded for a while. It got out of control. Partially because this was a small town, so hey, this was kind of exciting news and it spread fast, but also because of how strange the whole story was. What do you mean this family has a haunted bunk bed? Come on. The Tallman's haunting became a spectacle and the house became known as Wisconsin's very own Amneville, a place of pure evil. Reverend Dobratz returned to the home after the Tallmans moved out in hopes of inciting whatever evil had taken up residence there. And the town's police chief, Doug Glayman, didn't think the house was haunted, but after speaking with the family, he was convinced that they truly experienced the things that they claimed and saw that the Tallmans didn't want notoriety, they didn't want their faces in the public eye. They were just scared. 
This police chief was a skeptic, though, so he and two other officers scoured the house looking for evidence of a prank. Hidden recorders or projectors. But they found nothing and also couldn't find any way the family was or wanted to benefit from such an ordeal. In the end, the Tallmans went on to move to another city and said they didn't experience anything paranormal ever again. So this haunting is beyond insane. Am I right? What's really strange about this story is that everything changed for the family when they brought in this bunk bed. They didn't report any activity within the home before that, which gets into the realm of haunted items. When you purchase something at a secondhand store, it's true. You have no idea who owned it before you or what happened near or on the item. But when I hear the story, I really wonder if it was just a bunk bed or if there was something already in the house when they moved in, but the activity became amplified. The Tallmans were doing work to the home, changing things around, painting, moving furniture. It just makes me wonder. But what do you think? Do you believe this entity was attached to the bunk bed as the family believes or to the house itself or some sort of a supernatural combination? Let me know in the comments. I would love to hear your take on this case. Haunted bunk beds? Just when you thought you had seen and heard it all on this show, right? Our next story is the Odin family farmhouse in a case that remains unsolved to this day. One house, one day, 28 fires. Was this the work of a poltergeist? One morning, a 1940s Indiana farmhouse once had 28 fires set in one day by an unseen force, and it was never explained. Many, including the Hackler family, who called this historic farmhouse home for years, believed this was the work of an angry poltergeist. Odin, Indiana is a peaceful small town and not one you would suspect of having a history of paranormal mysteries. Yet on April 19, 1941, the Hackler family farmhouse would be the setting of one of the strangest supernatural puzzles of modern times. 28 separate fires broke out all over the family's farmhouse, out of nowhere, and all of these fires were as random as it gets. Some of the items that were set ablaze were random walls, curtains, books, a calendar, a mattress, and a wooden bowl in a cupboard. All burst into flames without rhyme or reason. One firefighter called it the most bizarre mystery he had ever come across in his career. At the center of the story is the farmhouse, and it was owned by the Hackler family. This family consisted of William and his wife Minnie, and their children, William Jr., Dorothy, Garland, Dale, and Virginia. The Hacklers had lived in the same house for over 10 years. It was home for them. The place was built just after the Civil War, and the area had a lot of history. On the morning of April 19th, it was a beautiful spring morning with clear blue skies. William made his way outside to begin work for the day, as he always did, when suddenly he began to smell smoke. He turned around and saw what appeared to be flames coming from below the second floor window of the farmhouse. William ran back inside to alert his wife, and he and his children ran upstairs to find there was a fire beneath the window coming from the wall. Firefighters were called and got to the scene, and they quickly put out the fire. But strangely, there was no damage or scorch marks to the surrounding walls. Now, thinking that the fire came from inside the wall, as it appeared, it was odd they couldn't find where it actually started. 
or a reason for it. They couldn't locate any damage to any of the surrounding areas for that matter. Firefighters hadn't really seen anything like this before. So they speak with William and Minnie. They're all puzzled and admit that this was strange, but the fire was put out. There was no immediate danger. Or so they thought. The firefighters left shortly after, but reportedly, the second they got back to the station, they received another call from Minnie and she was scared. She said they needed to come back immediately as there was now a second fire inside the house, this time coming from a mattress. The firefighters rushed back to the farmhouse, located the second fire, and put this one out. And after this, things got really strange. As the firefighters were still inside the home, another fire began right in front of a firefighter and William. William's clothing, hanging on the back of a door, went up in flames. As they rushed to put this out, two more fires started up out of nowhere. One fire on the complete opposite side of the farmhouse, and another inside of a book. But not the book itself, inside the pages. A firefighter said that he looked over to suddenly see smoke was pouring out of the pages of a book. When he opened it up, a small fire was quickly burning each page. Next, a lampshade burst into flames. Then a rug. Next, one part of one chair. Then, a wooden bowl that was inside a cupboard. Nothing else inside the cupboard was on fire and there was little to no damage to anything around the bowl. Within three hours, nine more fires from all corners of the house had broken out. This was unbelievable. And things were out of control. As the hours ticked by and small fires continued to erupt all over, it seemed there was no sign of the stopping. And no one knew where this was coming from. Eventually, the Odin Fire Department became overwhelmed. And they requested assistance from another fire brigade. They were just in over their heads. Over 100 firefighters were at the farmhouse. Many of these men were standing outside, directing those inside where to go next as they watched fire after fire start. One firefighter at the scene was inside the family's kitchen, looking for anything that could be causing this, looking for any sign of smoke. That's when he looked up and saw a calendar the family had hanging on the wall was smoking, and then flames began shooting from it. What? The firefighter was stunned and said it almost seemed like it was magic or something. Neighbors of the Hackler family saw what was going on and arrived to help as the firefighters continued their work inside, putting out fires. And the family began dragging out all of their furniture from the house. This included chairs, mattresses, anything they could save from the fires. They were essentially watching their entire home and all their belongings be destroyed at random, and this went on all day long. None of the children wanted to even step foot inside the house. The family was in complete and utter shock and horror. One witness said, It was like unseen hands were lighting matches all over the house. One of the last things that the firefighters had to put out was a set of curtains by the window near the front door. In front of several noted witnesses, these curtains went up in flames just behind where two people were standing. And as soon as these were put out, curtains from the opposite end of the house caught fire. Both times, the fire seemed to destroy only the curtains, leaving everything else undamaged. Upstairs at this very moment, another fire started in a bedroom beneath the only mattress that was left in the house. This was particularly strange as this fire was intense and within just a few minutes, nothing was left of the mattress but ashes. 
After this fire was put out, the family and firefighters waited for another to start, but finally it appeared the nightmare was over. The final fire was put out about an hour before midnight, more than 13 hours after this bizarre nightmare began. In total, more than 100 firefighters from two towns and numerous nearby neighbors found and put out 28 fires at the Hackler's house. No one was injured and there was no real damage to the house itself. But how? How could this be? After this, all anyone had were questions. The Hackler family was sick at the fact that no one had any explanation for what had happened. Fire investigators were thoroughly baffled. The fires were not electrical in origin. The farmhouse, much like many of the -the out-in-the-sticks Indiana farmhouses in the early 1900s, was not outfitted with any electrical wiring. So that wasn't it. There were no power lines nearby, no lightning strikes, or any other atmospheric phenomenon or bad weather that could possibly explain all the fires. That evening, the hacklers moved their remaining beds outside and slept outdoors that night. They were afraid of another fire breaking out in the house while they were asleep. It just wasn't worth the risk, and they were at a loss of what had just happened to their home. As you can imagine, this became the talk of the town. Neighbors and town locals began to say that the farmhouse was cursed. It had to be haunted. Some pointed to the family and said it was their fault. They were the ones who started all the fires. And the hacklers couldn't really even defend themselves as they had no explanation for what had happened. In a later interview, the Indiana State Fire Marshal stated that the Odin fires were by far the most baffling mystery of his entire career. And in the end, the case was closed with no answers. And to this day, the puzzling events of that day are completely unexplained. It's even more mind-bending when you realize the hacklers had lived in this house for more than a decade without any activity like this. Theories began to pop up. Some said the farmhouse must sit on a powerful magnetic field, and due to its energy and location, this led to the sporadic fires. Others blamed gases, which some thought had made their way into the farmhouse, and this is what caused the fires. Spontaneous combustion was another popular theory. But for that to occur 28 times in one home in one day was unbelievable. But the most popular theory around town was that this was paranormal. These fires were caused by a vengeful spirit, a poltergeist. Many believed the house was just cursed. And the Hackler family didn't know what to make of what happened, but they did know this. Whatever caused it was evil. They felt this was an attack. After, the Hackler family and a fire marshal began investigating the history of the farmhouse. They found that prior to the Hackler's ownership of the farmhouse, tragedy had struck there twice. A man by the name of Marshall Ketchum built the farmhouse and lived there with his wife and their children for about 15 years, until the unthinkable happened. One by one, each of the Ketchum's five children passed away from typhus. Marshall died a few years later, and many thought it was due to a broken heart. His wife passed away shortly after that. But here's the strange thing. A nickname for typhus is the burning fever. The next family that moved into the farmhouse was the Wilkie family. Andrew Wilkie, his wife, and their two sons lived in the house. But during a hunting trip, one of the sons was accidentally shot and killed. After this, it was said that Andrew, grief-stricken, also died of a broken heart and both men are said to be buried on the property. 
So giving this, many felt that the farmhouse and the land itself was cursed for any and all families who moved in. Following the 28 fires, the Hackler family wasn't going to take any chances. They decided to tear down the farmhouse and rebuild a new house somewhere else, literally. Bit by bit, the men of the Heckler family disassembled the entire farmhouse, only to rebuild it in a location not too far from the original one. And they said they never experienced anything again. But the legend of the 28 fires lived on for decades. What do you believe happened inside that farmhouse that day? Do you think there's a logical explanation that just hasn't been found yet? Or do you believe that this was paranormal? Like many in the town believed, was this the work of a vengeful spirit aiming to get retaliation on the family or anyone who took up residence in the house? A place that had seen so much tragedy in decades before? Was that farmhouse, the land, really cursed? Given how strange and unexplainable this case is, I'm leaning towards the latter. But what about you? What are your theories? Leave them in the comments. I cannot wait to hear. Our third story is a more recent one out of Colorado. It's not unusual for police dispatchers to answer 911 calls only to have the caller hang up. Dispatchers are also quite used to receiving strange calls at all hours of the day and night. They really have to be ready for anything and everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the paranormal. On August 11, 2018, the Pueblo Police Communications Center received what they referred to as an abandoned 911 call at 3.28 a.m. An abandoned call simply means that dispatch answered the 911 call, but the caller hung up on them. This dispatcher answered this incoming call, and as soon as they did, the line disconnected. Per protocol, this dispatcher called the number back, because if this was an emergency, they have to track down who's calling and if they need help. So the dispatcher hops back on the line and calls this number back. And the call was picked up by someone or something. The dispatcher didn't know who was on the other end of the line, as they could just hear a low static. But if you listen closely, you can hear someone or something, a disembodied voice. Let's take a listen to this 911 call, shall we? Are you ready for goosebumps? Because they're coming in three, two, one. I've got chills down my back. Now, given the hour, police didn't feel this was a prankster, nor did it appear to be a concerned citizen. As if all of this weren't creepy enough, police traced the call and pinpointed that it was coming from a place called Imperial Memorial Gardens. What's chilling about this is Imperial Memorial Gardens is a funeral home in a cemetery located on Highway 78. And at this hour, the funeral home was closed and had been for quite some time. It was also thought to be empty. So a couple off-duty officers were sent to check out Imperial Memorial Gardens. Upon arriving, the officers found the funeral home was, as they thought, locked up tight. Dark, vacant, without a soul in sight. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did, so we're going with it. There were no signs of a break-in either. The owners of the funeral home didn't call in the next day either to report anything out of the ordinary. So this call remains unexplained. And it really creeped out many of the members of the department. 
When asked, Captain Tom Rummel said, We're not sure what happened. Probably just line trouble, right? Let's go with that. But the weird thing about this one is the fact that when dispatch called the number back, it was picked up. Someone answered the phone. And when you listen to that audio, it sounds like someone is talking. In my opinion, it sounds like a male's voice. And the voice sounds distant, sounds like it's coming from far away, but you can hear it. Many have looked at the timestamp of this call with a raised eyebrow, if you know what I mean. It came around 3.30 a.m., the witching hour. In folklore, the witching hour is a time of night associated with supernatural events. Unearthly creatures are thought to appear in this time frame where the veil between the living and the dead is lowered. And spirits, entities, are said to be their most powerful. In Western Christian tradition, the witching hour is between 3 and 4 a.m. Interestingly, in 2018, a paranormal expert in the UK named Phil Hayes was interviewed, and he believes that ghosts, spirits, have and are trying to contact the living through phones, through electronics. With the number of mysterious calls attributed them rising by 43% in the last four years. Phil, who is a paranormal investigator from Paranormal Research UK, believes a third of all hauntings or supernatural encounters are now through mobile phones. He said, There's evidence to suggest that ghosts can use phones to communicate with reports of people receiving phone calls from deceased relatives. According to him, the calls often feature a heavy static and the voice sounds faint and distant. And 9 and 10 show up as withheld number or a bunch of zeros on the caller ID when the call comes in. As we heard in that chilling 911 call, the voice sounds faint and distant with a lot of static. I watch a lot of supernatural clips for this show and some of them, eh, I'm not so convinced. But this audio really sounds exactly like what I think a ghostly call would sound like. There's something about that voice chilling. But in the end, who or what the caller wanted remains a mystery. But I gotta know, have you ever experienced anything strange or unexplainable like this? A ghost call? If so, I want to hear about it. Drop your spooky experiences in the comments. I cannot wait to hear them. And the next time your phone rings and it's a number you don't recognize, you never know who may be on the other end of that line. Someone living or maybe not. Our final story for today is truly an incredible supernatural case out of California. More than 50% of the population claims they've experienced an after-death visit from a past loved one. And many people say these visions are often brief, but leave them with a sense of peace and serenity. These visits are frequently reported at their bedside or somewhere in nature. When the Rourke family suffered a tragic and sudden loss, they were heartbroken. But in the days following the tragedy, they experienced a series of events that changed everything for them. On April 14, 1984, 18-year-old Paige Rourke left her house in Fallbrook, California to meet up with some friends. She hugged her mom, Cynthia, and said goodbye, and as usual said she'd be home later. But this day, she didn't come home. Six hours later, Paige Rourke and one of her friends were killed when a drunk driver smashed into their car. Her mother, Cynthia, along with the rest of the family, was devastated. Cynthia Rourke said she never felt so hopeless. She said her heart was crushed. She tried to overcome her grief by running, a passion of hers and something that she shared with Paige. In the mornings, the two would go on runs together. 
Two days after the crash, Cynthia left her house at 5 a.m. for a solo run, or so she thought. After jogging for about an hour, and as dawn was breaking, Cynthia looked up and saw rays of sunshine coming through the trees of a nearby wooded area she was passing. The light suddenly got really bright, so she stopped and looked for a second, when all of a sudden, she heard a familiar voice, her daughter's. Paige's voice emerged from the light and said that she was okay. She said she was with God and said that she was fine. Cynthia stood there stunned and said she felt a great sense of peace and happiness wash over her at that moment. After days of anguish and grief, she felt serene. She knew her daughter was okay. The light slowly faded away, leaving Cynthia grateful and stunned. If this wasn't incredible enough, Cynthia soon realized she wasn't the only person who received a visit from Paige. Her spirit was busy. She had been traveling all over. Cynthia was shocked to learn that her mother, Paige's grandmother, who lived a thousand miles away in Denver, had a similar and even more vivid visit from Paige. Dorothy, Paige's grandmother, said she was lying in bed late that night before when a bright golden light emerged in her bedroom doorway. When Dorothy looked up, she saw the spirit of Paige standing there in all white. She said she looked beautiful, peaceful, and perfect. She said Paige spoke to her and said, I love you, Grandma. I'm okay. And so is my mom. I've seen my mom and I'll take care of her. My mom was the name they gave Dorothy's mother, Paige's great-grandmother, who had passed away years before. Dorothy began crying, emotional, but knew that this was her granddaughter visiting her. She said it was very, very real, and she knew it happened. This was no dream. Dorothy said this visit from Paige made it clear that she was okay and gave her a sense of peace, just as it gave Cynthia. They also felt they didn't need to worry about Paige. She was okay. She said Paige was actually there to comfort them. Paige's spirit in the bright white light faded away, leaving Dorothy sitting in bed, stunned, just as her daughter was back in California. These experiences changed everything for Paige's family. The driver that killed Paige and her friend was a former elementary school teacher named Robert Scott Carlton, who was 29. He was later charged and sentenced to almost 11 years. And although they had to live without Paige, the family took comfort that she visited them after the accident. Dr. Melvin Morse, an associate professor at the University of Washington, looked into this case and believes that Cynthia and Dorothy's visions were real. For so many, these kinds of experiences have always been brushed aside as grief-induced hallucinations. But Dr. Morse, along with many others, believe that these visitations, these visions from loved ones, are real. They are real interactions between the person who passed away and the person who is experiencing the vision. And not just that, we can learn things from them. But many others don't believe they are real. Some see them as merely symptoms of the mind trying to deal with a terrible loss. But what do you believe? Have you ever experienced a visit from a past loved one? If you have, I would love to hear about it. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. I would love it if you subscribe to this channel. And if you haven't already, leave a like and a comment. And let me know what cases, places, and stories you'd like to see next on Avery After Dark. Next week, I have another very mysterious and chilling episode coming your way. Until then, I'm Avery Ross, and this is Avery After Dark.